this morning. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of John, where uh, over the past three weeks we've been taking a break from the book of Romans uh, to, to jump into the book of John. Now, one of the things that I understand this morning, and if you're a visitor, you may need to understand that if you hear people yelling yes and doing fist pumping, it's probably not anything I said, but they're probably sinfully watching the masters during my sermon. So we will, the elders will deal with them later um, on that. Just kidding. So to, we celebrate today in, in the history and life of the church uh, what's considered to be Palm Sunday or the, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as we look at this event in the Bible, um, if you look at it, and if you read about it in the Gospels, it's, it's one of the events that's in all the Gospel narratives, really what's going on and what's being proclaimed in this triumphant entry is, is a revolution. Um, when It's a revolution misunderstood, but a revolution nonetheless. I, I was reminded uh, this, this past week of, of a song uh, from the 90s uh, by a lady by the name of Tracy Chapman, a song called Talking About a Revolution, for some of you 90s teenagers that remember that song, and uh, uh, talking about the song was about poor people rising up and having a a revolution. Certainly, we all know, uh, hopefully we all know that our country was birthed, uh, rightly or wrongly, our country was birthed in revolution, the American Revolution, where where uh, we, we were being taxed unfairly and we were being burdened, and so the early, our forefathers rise, rose up against tyranny and revolted, and we uh, are standing here as a sovereign nation as a result on that. If you've paid attention to the news, uh, in Venezuela there is talk of revolution. People are being oppressed. Um, people, it's, it's hard for them to find food. They're being taxed heavily. What's interesting is that as we look at this account in the book of John, in Jerusalem and in the areas surrounding, um, there was oppression. You know, one of the things that was going on is that Rome, who, who governed these territories, were uh, taxing uh, their conquered territories pretty heavily, unfairly. <laughs> there was a sense in which Rome with its leaders, uh, were trying to somewhat force uh, a level of imperial worship. And so we see, as we read the Gospels, one of the things that you see if you read the Gospels keenly and acutely and awarely, if that's a word, (laughs) one of the things that you see is that you see this interplay that's going on between uh, Rome and the Jewish people, where Rome on its side is is trying to get as much as it can out of uh, the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, while every now and then throwing them a bone, maybe building something for them, or, or doing something for them that, that, that kind of creates, you know, a, an olive branch of, of peace. And on the flip side, on the flip side, we also see that the, the Jews are... Are, are really wanting to have their independence. They're, they're really wanting to have their own identity. But we also see them also playing a game in which they're trying to keep Rome happy out of fear that if they cause too much disruption that Rome would come in and squash them. And we 
see this in the Gospels, right? We see when Jesus was being trapped, trying, they tried to trap Jesus, and they came and asked him the question about paying taxes. Do you remember that? Th- this gives an example of the interplay that was going on between Rome and the Jewish people. Last week, as we were uh, looking uh, at some, some verses, we read uh, chapter 11, verse 48. Listen to the Pharisees and chief priests here. They said, if we let him go on like this, meaning Jesus, all men will believe in him. And notice this, notice the fear, here's the tension. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we see that there is a hardship here. We see that the Roman, uh, the, the Roman government is, is, is ruling. We see that the Jewish people feel this pressure and feel this tension. And on top of this, the Jewish people have all this prophecy in the Old Testament that they would be reading at this time, that they would be memorizing at this time, that talked about one that is coming that is going to free them from the oppression that they are feeling. That one is going to come in and usher in peace and secure their sovereignty. Now, this is the background And what we have is, enter Jesus. (laughs) Enter Jesus into this. Now, the goal of John, as he is writing this gospel, is for us to know who is this Jesus. For us to be keenly aware of who is this Jesus of Nazareth. And and, and one of the things that we see over and over, and we pointed out last week, is that the people were seeing Jesus, But not all saw who He was. Remember last week, one of the things that we talked about, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and and this was the culmination, the climax of Jesus' miracles, and we have some people going to Mary and becoming worshipers of Jesus, and we have other people going to the Pharisees. And we have the Pharisees angry about who this man is. So seeing, they didn't see. So, the background, the background of Jesus riding into Jerusalem is one of high tension. It's one where there was a lot at stake. Jesus had just performed His greatest miracle. Think about this. Jesus publicly raised Lazarus from the dead after He had been dead and in the grave for four days. There was a buzz. There was a stir. The Pharisees were enraged. The Pharisees were saying, let us know where He is so that we may seize Him. They were upset because people were leaving them and going out to Jesus. They were also upset because people, as they were following Jesus, they were upset that the Romans might get upset and come in and ruin what they had going. And the key to understanding Palm Sunday is realizing that nobody knew what was happening. That as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, no one else knew what was going on but Jesus. If you were here last week, you would know that these events are taking place, that Passover is at hand. Um, Josephus um, was, was writing about Passover 
in the year 64 to 70, and he estimated at that time, people think the numbers might have been inflated, but there were about 2.7 million Jews who went to Jerusalem. So what I want you to see is, as the Jews were entering into Jerusalem for Passover, there were a lot of people there. Sometimes in the recreation of uh, the triumphant entry, we see a couple hundred people or, you know, this would have been a large group of people. A lot of people. And tensions were high. People were talking. Last week, we saw that they were asking the question, will Jesus come? Some of them were asking that because they wanted to see this man who had raised Lazarus from the dead. Others were asking this because they knew that the Pharisees had essentially put out a hit on him. And so they were asking the question, will he come? It was the talk of the town. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there. This is when he was at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they came out, not for Jesus' sake only but so they may see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And on the next day, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the palm branches and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, what we need to know is that there are three groups of people who are here. Notice one of the things that's interesting in verse 9. Notice this. John is very meticulous in telling us the differences in the crowds. In verse 9, he tells us this. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came out not for Jesus' sake only, but they may also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Then look at verse 12. So this was at Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, the Passover feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and notice this, went out to meet Him. This was a different crowd. And then, and then later, verses 17 through 18, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went out and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So you had this crowd that from Jerusalem heard he was coming, that was coming out to meet him. And these are the ones that laid the palm branches and were declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of Israel. You have the ones who had had been with him, who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, who were testifying about him, and they continued to testify as they went to Jerusalem. And so another crowd stirred and went out. And notice there was another group that was there in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another. So the Pharisees are kind of overlooking and seeing all this. And the Pharisees were there. And notice their conclusion. You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone out after him. And what we're going to see is that although these crowds are different, they were all expecting a revolution. I believe that the ones that were following Jesus, the one that had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, 
They knew their Bible. It was taught to them. They knew that one would come that would free them from oppression. They had seen His power in raising a dead man to life. And so they were there celebrating, saying, this is the Messiah. He's going to set us free. On the other end of the spectrum, you had the Pharisees and the high priests, the chief priests, and they were saying, look, this man is going to get us all killed. And then you had all the people in the middle. And we see this when you see revolutions or when you see things happening in crowds, that whichever way the wind was blowing was the way that they were going. This is how you get a crowd at one point who is screaming out Hosanna and not too much longer are yelling crucify Him. The key again is that everyone in this crowd was misunderstanding what was happening. All of them were misunderstanding the revolution that was going to take place. You may say, Lewis, where in the world are you getting that they're expecting a a revolution? And so let's dig in. I'm glad you asked that question. I love it when you do that for me. And so notice, notice in verse 13, they took the branches of palm trees. So the crowd took these branches of palm trees. Now, palm trees were used um, to to line the road, uh, particularly in Rome when a conqueror was coming into town, when a king or someone who had conquered another nation, it was a sign of of, of royalty. It was a sign of a conquering hero. In fact, uh, if you look at some of the coinage from this time, you will see palm trees representing uh, different emperors and their uh, conquest as as royalty. Now also, um, within the Jewish nation itself, a hundred years before, there was a man named uh, Judas Maccabeus, and uh, he had had a great conquest where he had brought this area known as Acre back into Jerusalem. Now, the, the Jewish people were occupied at this time as well, and it was thought of by the Jews that this man was the Messiah, and as he rode back into Jerusalem, this same thing occurred. They put out palm branches to welcome him in. The key here, the key here, is that this is a bold, loud public statement. This is a bold and loud public statement. In fact, in fact, look, look down. It said they, they put the palm branches there and they went out to meet him and they began to shout. Now, in the Greek, this is in the imperfect tense and it means that they kept on shouting or they were shouting all the while. So they were lining the road with palm branches and they were screaming. And who do you think could hear them? The Romans. This is the exact sort of thing that the Pharisees and chief priests dreaded. That the Romans would catch wind of what was going on and put an end to it. And put an end to them. Notice what they were shouting. Notice what they were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this was taken from Psalm 118. Psalm 113 through 118 was um, known as a... There was a song called the Hillel and it was sing. It was a series of psalms that were sung um, every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so every good Jewish pilgrim that was there in Jerusalem would have known this song, would have known where this phrase was from. And this phrase 
carries with it the connotation of this is our Messiah. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. And just in case uh, that that wasn't made clear, um, either they added or John added to this, uh, notice what is added here, uh, the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so these people, as they were shouting and as they were gathered, were expecting a revolution. Now, Jesus as he is riding into Jerusalem, does the Pharisees who are scared, he does them no favors by putting down this idea that a revolution was going to take place. What we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, this is a major shift from his normal actions as we see him in the book of John. Much of the time we see Jesus in the book of John, He is avoiding crowds and withdrawing during times when great acclamation is coming to Him. In John chapter 6, notice this. You don't have to turn there, but this is after Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. And then in John chapter 6, verse 15, He had just fed the 5,000. And notice this. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come... And to make, him, to make him by force to be king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So notice the shift. Jesus spent much time saying, my hour has not yet come. And here we have Jesus with all the fanfare, with all that was taking place, not secretly entering Jerusalem as he had done before, but publicly and loudly entering Jerusalem. Notice also that Jesus just doesn't go into Jerusalem, walk into Jerusalem, but He goes into Jerusalem riding. We see in verse 14 and 15, Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is a direct quote from prophecy from Zechariah, verse 9-9. Normally... Normally, a king heading into a city would not be riding a donkey, but would be riding a war horse, a big stallion to show power. But Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, and He was fulfilling prophecy that would be known. And and before we give these people too hard of a time, let's look at that prophecy for just one second. In Zechariah chapter 9, I'll read these verses, but here you will see this, this quote. In in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then notice the next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea to see, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, Jesus riding in on this donkey is proclaiming and announcing that He is the prophesied King. John records in the first chapter of this Gospel that when He 
met there, when Jesus met and called uh, Nathanael, uh, look at uh, in verse 49 of chapter 1, Nathanael says this, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King, notice the word, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, you believe? Jesus doesn't say, I'm not the king. Notice what Jesus said. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't shy away from this title. Jesus double downs on it. And then later, later, as Jesus is uh, being questioned, um, he says this, uh, therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. So Jesus, entering Jerusalem, doesn't do anything to quiet this revolution. Jesus rides in publicly as the prophesied Messiah on the young colt, announcing that the king of Israel is here. And notice what happens in John chapter 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. This is Pilate. And he said to the Jews, notice these people that were crying, Hosanna, blessed, is you, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. Sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And so they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. There was an expectation of a revolution, and it, when it didn't happen like the people thought it would happen, they went right back to what they knew. Their hopes were dashed. What they missed was the kind of king he was and the kind of revolution that he was bringing. We saw this in Zechariah when it says that he's riding in on a donkey and this was to signify his humility. We also see this uh, after his ride into Jerusalem that Jesus, the king of Israel, does what? He washes his disciples' feet. He makes himself low and washes his disciples' feet. Luke gives an interesting uh, fact that we don't get in the book of John, but in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, notice, notice Jesus riding into Jerusalem here. It says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Luke records for us Jesus weeping 
saying over Jerusalem, you don't understand. John recorded for us, when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus weeping because his friends didn't understand. So why did they miss it? Why did they miss it? Well, we're going to talk a little bit next week about one of the big reasons why they miss it. I'm going to save that for then. Some of this talk about their eyes were not open and their eyes were closed. We certainly see in verse 16 of our passage, these things His disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of Him, that they had done these things to Him. Certainly, one of the reasons why they missed it was because, um, uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting here, when you read Old Testament prophecy, the prophets in the Old Testament didn't see things the way they... Uh, i got to be careful how I word this. They saw the first and second coming of Christ in the same event. One of the things that they didn't see was this time period between the first and second coming of Christ. And it's clear when we read Old Testament prophecy, like the one we just read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. It was seen as one event, and it's, it would be common to read it this way. But the other reason why they didn't see it, because what they were expecting was a Savior who would come and save them from the oppressors, Rome. Notice what Jesus says. Again, in chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Notice this. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is... My kingdom is not of this realm. So what we have in Jesus and what Jesus tells us as, the, as this narrative unfolds is that there is a revolution occurring. There is a revolution occurring. It's just not the kind of revolution that you're looking for. But this revolution is way better than the kind of revolution that you are looking for and the kind of revolution that you're expecting. If you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Romans and we talked about um, that, that all men were, were born in the lineage of Adam, that we were all born under the curse, hopeless and helpless, but God, because of His great love sent His Son to die on the cross so a revolution could occur so that we no longer had to be in the lineage of Adam, but that we could be ransomed. We could be ransomed and brought over into the kingdom of God. The revolution that occurred went all the way back to the beginning of time when the curse was put on mankind, and we remember, right, that it said that they will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. The revolution is right in front of him. It's not just a Jewish revolution. It's a revolution that affects all mankind. 
king, the faultless son of God, took on our sin and our punishment so that we could have peace, not with Rome, but with God. I love, we were, uh, there's a group of us that meet and we're starting to look at 1 Peter and I was just reminded as I was studying, and, and, and this is the point, right? First Peter chapter 1, listen, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice the difference from, from, from worldly peace to the greatness of heavenly peace. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's our hope. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible and full of, with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. This is the revolution that Jesus was ushering in. And I have two closing thoughts. And I know I have several thoughts within thoughts. So the first closing thought, and I will tell you what the second one is too. And we just can't avoid asking this question. But what happens when we bring our own agendas, our own demands to Jesus? When in, the Bible tells us to, to make our requests known to God, He loves us, He cares for us, He is our Father, He wants to provide for us. He wants us to enjoy His blessings. He wants us to enjoy Him. That's, that's who He is. He is a loving Father. But sometimes, one of the things that we do is we bring our own agenda, our own demands to Jesus... And I think this is one of the things that's happening in the text is they are saying, free us from Rome. And one of the things that happens when we do that is sometimes when we are doing that, we miss the bigger, greater gift that is being given to us. So that sometimes our own desires and our own wants get in the way of us seeing the greatness and the goodness and the love of God and His care for us. And I know this happens in my life all the time. That when I'm going through something or when something is going on or when I've got these very sinful desires, that one of the things that happens is that my vision of Jesus gets real cloudy. And I thank the Lord for the New Testament that I can look here and I can see Jesus, I can see His words... And he says, look to me, I'm far greater than any of those worldly pleasures that may just satisfy you for a little while, but they're not going to last. They're not imperishable. They're not undefiled. The second thing that I want you to see 
So this is the second thing and the last thing. This revolution was far beyond anyone's wildest expectations. Nobody saw it. You know, I go back to that Tracy Chapman song. Um, uh, I'm not going to sing it, um, but she says something about talking about a revolution, and then she it whispers. <laughs> this is not the fast car song that you don't know any of the words to. You know, anyways, going somewhere. This revolution that Jesus was bringing in wasn't a whisper, it was a shout. <laughs> it was a proclamation. It is loud. And as you, as we look over the next two weeks, as we look at Jesus not only entering Jerusalem, but going to the cross and dying and, 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 and being raised from the dead, let's remember this revolution that has taken place. And, and, and let's let it pry us from hoping and placing our hope and trust in anything in this world that will let us down and let it take us to a place where we're seeing the greatness of our Savior, His love for us and what He's done for us. Let's let this revolution run rampant in our souls so that we are rejoicing and that when we cry, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, that we are doing it on this side of the cross out of a place of victory. That if you are in Christ, if you have accepted Him as your Savior, a revolution has taken place in your soul and you are a child of God and this is cause for great rejoicing this morning. And also, let us know, and this goes to one of the things that Ken was talking about this morning, let us know and always remember that this King will come again. And the second coming of this king is not going to be on a donkey, but on a horse with a sword. One of the reasons why I love it so much that we support missions and that we support missionaries and people who are going to the place where the gospel is not proclaimed is because I believe in the second coming of Christ. And I am thankful for people who not only rejoice in their own salvation, but also realize that the Lord will come again. And that while we are here, we have a job to do. So let us, let us celebrate of a people who have been taken part of a revolution where Satan and his minions and his plan has been defeated and will be defeated. And also in that celebration, let us be people who declare to the world that our King has come and will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we can't even begin to thank You and rejoice enough over what You have done and the havoc that you have wreaked in our lives and in our souls, those of us who have put our trust and hope in you. God, I just want to pray this morning that if there might be someone here who 
is not living for you. They're living for the world. And maybe as we talked about the people who were along the roads, who were shifting whichever way the wind blown, that they identified more there. And God, I pray that maybe your spirit would even open their eyes this morning. And they may see you and your son for who you are. And that a revolution would take place within their soul. That a new king would take the seat in the throne of their life. God, for those who have placed their trust in you, God, I pray, I pray that we would see this as the greatest news ever and be people that leave here proclaiming Hosanna. Blessed is he who have come in the name of the Lord. God, all this is only possible because of your great love in sending your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We will close.